This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 4, Early Arcade Games, with Brian Fife, Jim Fingal, and Tom Westberg. He's playing World of Tanks. <laughs> is he, uh, he going to continue to do that? No. He said he'd come over as soon as he dies, so I, I expect we'll see him within the next minute. <laughs> Alrighty. That must have been an epic bout. <laughs> you mean how quickly I died? I, I think I had three smoking tanks in various battles I left behind. So. <laughs> I will someday be worthy of being in a platoon with you. Have no fear. You're worthy of being in a platoon yeah. with me already, Tom. <laughs> Never leaving man behind. Something like that. Because it's a pretty awesome game. It is a pretty good game, although it, it is also clearly cool to be in the same room while you're playing it as well. Well, it can be arranged, you know. Yeah. It could be arranged this weekend. I, I don't think uh, I can play. I was just assuming that you were inviting me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except you don't have a PC, right? Well, not technically. I, I have a desktop. Oh, you do? So you have something you can condescend to use. Yeah, I do. I uh, I haven't hooked it up though. Well, <laughs> I didn't spend a lot of time, but from start to finish, a lot of time elapsed while I was trying to set up World of Tanks, my parents' computer, over the weekend. But uh, started in the morning and downloaded it, and then did this and did that, and then realized that the game is completely unplayable on the machine because it only has a gig of a gig of RAM. Only. Yeah. <laughs> But that was kind of a bummer. Is is World of Tanks anything like World of War where you're a tank instead of a uh, an orc? No. Okay. Yes, you are tanks rather than orcs, but the the different tank classes are important, and the mechanics of the tanks are reasonably well simulated. Well, there's a tankopedia. There's a lot of different tanks. We can do a podcast. I, I think so. I think we could do a podcast. So I, I, this isn't, we don't have a, necessarily an agenda, but I'm, I'm curious if either or both of you read the Boston Magazine article on 38 Studios. I linked it, and I, I read the summary, but I didn't read the whole thing. Okay. It's, I, I uh, recommend it. It has some very interesting stuff. I'm amazed how many times I've heard 38 Studios on uh, NPR, but I guess it, it did ravage the... The economy of a, of a state. I think it did bad things to them. I'm not that surprised. There's also a, well, yes, I'm not that I'm not that surprised. The interesting note for me, I think it was Scott Jennings' Broken Toys blog, uh, mentioned the article, and in the article, Kurt Schilling is quoted as having said. They thought they were still close to a year out. But he was unhappy that while the game was artistically beautiful, it didn't actually seem fun. And Jennings said, basically, this shows that he really doesn't know anything about game design because the fun doesn't come in until the last minute. Now, I haven't been part of an MMO design to understand that, whether that is is true, that, that the final balancing and the final battle tweaking and so forth it just happens and then everything else falls into place all the quest progressions and so forth that you've been spending the several years building along with 
all the other mechanics of the game are, are suddenly fun altogether, or if that isn't necessarily so for, for an MMO. I, I guess I can imagine it going either way. If, if that's the case, boy, that sounds terrifying to me. I agree. What was the game that was being developed again? There were very few details that actually made it out. You know, it was an MMO, fantasy MMO. Involving baseball? Uh, not really. Yeah, called Copernicus, and it was in a world that we saw in a game called Reckoning. So it was a fairly standard, I guess, fantasy-ish world. Where everyone has baseball bats instead of swords? You're not going to let this go, are you? <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that was actually interesting about what they did was he pulled together talent to build the world. So, and it's certainly been done before, but not to this degree where he had Todd McFarlane, the comic book artist, do all the art concept work. And he had Bob Salvatore do the writing, who's a very widely published fantasy author. I would say the, the world creating, because they, they had different people on staff doing most of the actual writing. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I will read that article. Yeah. How did you guys finish up with the Steam sale? I bought all my game right away and, uh, and then didn't buy any other ones other than that Portal 2 book that was 99 cents and, and looked cool. I got tempted into to Bastion, and so I've been playing that some. Oh, yeah, that, that's pretty fun. I feel like I saw that at two PAXs and was not at all interested in going over and playing it. But then, uh, you know me, a sucker for narrative was uh, was drawn in by the, the prospect of someone narrating everything I was doing. I was surprised at how compelling that is. You know, other than that, it's not a lot of ground that hasn't been tread in the Super Nintendo games that I really enjoyed growing up other than the aspects of the the worlds that I guess you, you can't really go back to. I like the uh, the, the land that – it's a, a dumb thing to say you like about Bastion, but how, how the land just rises up when you walk around. Well, I, actually, I don't think that is a dumb thing. I think – the way things sort of fall into place as, or, or rise up is sort of expressing an attitude of the game designers of how things just spring up. I, I would I started to say playful, but it actually has a slightly different attitude, a more in-your-face attitude than that. I actually think that's the way that things visually appear is of a piece with the way things are narrated. Yeah, it's the the idea of the world that has sort of fallen apart and uh, like fractured. Those are the the differentiators, and that's what made it stick out so much. I agree. There there aren't that many differentiators, and those are the big ones. For me, one of the differentiators is it's on the Mac, so I can play. <laughs> it's on Xbox too. Thank you. Okay, good. I did uh, get Field Runners 2 on my iPhone. There are enough promos for it, read all the little iOS app blogs and so forth, that I finally broke down and, and sprung for the $3, even though I know that they will have a different version for the iPad and that that's calculated. $3, uh, man. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that solidarity or is that you really want to play Field Runners? It's both. I uh, know Jamie Gotch, who was one of the founders of Subatomic and, and like him. But also, I really enjoyed Field Runners 1, and this is different, and I'm enjoying it. Way more animation, way more 3D-ish effects and so forth. It, it 
feels like they grew up and got to know the uh, platform a lot better. I was I was surprised at how deep I fell into Field Runners because the mechanics let me do something that felt like it was an exploit, and I right. got a lot of mileage out of that. Well, now they're they're trying to close off some of those exploits of building and rebuilding and so forth because there are negative consequences for selling bases. Yeah, that was the that was a hook is they had instantaneous sell of towers. Yes, but it's it's definitely it's it's still fun. There were, one one thing about the three dollar thing. I just read a couple of of articles recently about Android games, an Android game that was a dollar going free because it was being pirated so much. Yeah, uh, just I just downloaded that today because and, it was free. <laughs> and that's absurd, of course. The idea that uh, it's not it this is not the oh, the, those evil studios won't make it available to me. And it's not, oh, those evil people won't make it available to me at a reasonable price, because a dollar is a pretty darn reasonable. It's, I don't want to pay for anything ever. Well, you almost end up with two classes of games. You end up with, you know, Kings of Dragon Pass selling for 8 bucks, and then the ones that sell for $0.99, cents, and there really isn't a lot of room for anything else. Right, and even at eight bucks, you have to sell a lot to to pay pay for things. Uh, the, well, that that was a fully baked title that they just ported over. Yeah, I feel like Square Enix has done some nine dollar titles that would have run quite nicely again on, on the Super Nintendo, but are the making those same types of games for iOS? Yeah, they're they're selling uh, Final Fantasy three, I think, on the Android. For north of five bucks. Yeah, I haven't played any new iOS games in a while. Of of the uh, Steam summer sale purchases that I got, I, I played the genre of Space Pirates and Zombies. That game was super fun, very old school. Did you ever play Subspace when it was out? Uh, I did not. No. It was a it was a top down two D scroller. You know, you had the slow ship that had a lot of armor and the fast one that was weak and all that. Mm-hmm. And then you could jump onto somebody else's ship and be effectively a turret on their ship. Oh, really? And multiple people could do that. So you would see these ships that would fly by and they'd have like eight people jumped on top of them. <laughs> and so it became sort of a gunship. It was really cool. Wait, so it's literally your ship flies on top of their ship? Your ship disappears and you just become a, a gun rotating around the mm. ship. Yeah, Space Pirates and Zombies, it definitely has the, it satisfies that that part of your psyche, which was attractive to me about EVE, which is lots of different types of ships and and, and different upgrades. Yeah, I'm going to try the plasma cannon, yeah. Yeah, much much lower barrier to entry to to actually doing those upgrades. (laughs) You control, you can have multiple ships, uh, switch between control of them some AI where you can tell your other guys what to do. It's fundamentally, I guess, like a procedurally generated ga- galaxy where you're hopping between worlds, uh, each of which there's these two factions at war and one you know, resource that's mined from asteroids. And in any given 
the, the different worlds, uh, the communication is broken down between them. So as you go from from like solar system to solar system, in in one of them you can be on the side of of the the big like scary corporation. Uh, beating down the civilians, and and then you you switch over to another world, and suddenly you're you're with the the freedom fighters, uh, all depending on who has the best blueprints to sell you, so that you can upgrade more things. <laughs> That's brutal. Yeah, I was up until I think three on Friday and Saturday. Part of my up until three on Saturday was finishing Special Ops: The Line, which got got a little bit better. Actually, Tom Bissell has. A good article on that that he wrote for Grantland, which is sort of a take on it was it was partially a review of Special Ops, the line, and partially just a an adult taking a look at at why he's really into first person shooters, despite being fundamentally disturbed by the concept of military shooters. <laughs> Has had the good line of how he wonders how the people who make Call of Duty can sleep at night, and sometimes when he can't sleep at night, he plays Call of Duty. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm playing Max Payne 3 right now, and an interesting thing about that is it's in certain games it becomes it's more a puzzle than than other games in the sense of like each each different encounter is a set of a sort of a set of obstacles that that you have to bypass, and you have a limited number of resources, and there are different sort of like path, pathways through the first-person shooter puzzle. I'm definitely running out of ammo a lot in that game. It has the cool feature. It both has uh, bullet time vision, but also I, I don't know if this was in the previous game, but if you get shot by someone as you're falling down dead, if you're able to shoot them, you know, before you hit the ground, then you like get half of your life back and, and and you're not out of the game. That might make sense in a zombie-like world, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Or a world in which you're a broken mercenary guarding Brazilian plutocrats. Uh, okay, in, in that world too, yeah. <laughs> we have a different kind of sponsor today. Oh, yeah? Yeah, today's show is brought to everybody by... The Cardboard Council. The Cardboard Council really wants uh, everybody to know that there's more to them than just the crappiest container available in any game. I feel like they've been demonized through through the history of gaming and, and wanted to set the record straight. A lot of ways that cardboard boxes can, can really make your, your game more complete, whether you need to get on to a high surface or whether you need to sneak past a bunch of enemy spies. Solid Snake taught us that one. Remember, cardboard isn't just there to hold stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, the great thing about Metal Gear Solid Sons of the Patriots is is you have a, a 1 to, to 500,000 ratio of time spent in cardboard boxes to cutscenes. <laughs> <laughs> and don't you, really, don't you really think that's a little out of whack? Metal Gear Solid 2 is one of the games that... It's on the short list of, of games that... that uh, like 20 hours or more that, that I more or less played all the way through. So I, I'm a fan of the, the series of games, and I think like like a number of games that I played, I, I went into that specifically because it was so bizarre and out of whack with content and in balance of that content than, than other games that it seemed like there must be something interesting there. It's, just, it's one of those franchises that has its own gravity, right? Yeah. So, Tom, 
Yes, indeed. So I've been thinking about uh, coin-operated uh, arcade games. Ah, the joys of the 70s. My, my days. I played a fair amount of coin-operated games in the, uh, in the late 80s. Well, those, those games don't even exist to Tom. They don't even count as, as the same kind of uh, diversion. Alien vs. Predator? No? <laughs> That's an awesome game. <laughs> yeah. Doug, Doug Legends? Oh, that, one, that one he likes. I definitely like. Yeah, yeah that, one's, that one's up on, on, on my list. But it's, it's definitely true. I started off essentially seeing a video game. Well, I remember seeing the first coin-operated video game in an arcade, which was Computer Space. And it was very cool. It was a you know a couple of flying saucers that you shoot at with a, a spaceship, and not very smart. It didn't have a microprocessor in it doing anything. But I had no idea at the time it was a video game. It was not obvious to me. I'd never heard of the idea of playing a game on a television, and I saw this cabinet and anything else like it in the, in the arcades at that time would have been done with things that, say, projected an image against a screen or had little models that move around. There were shooting games and little flying games, and the driving games tended to project a moving roadway against a screen with a, a shape of a car that you, you move across it to try to uh, dodge the other cars, which are little mechanical things that came down on you. So that was what I was expected that it was. And I played this thing in the arcade, and what happens if you hit, if you manage to be ahead of the computer at the end of the time, you go, you get extra, uh, extra time, which they called hyperspace, and it went to inverse video, which is a trivial thing to do in, in video, but I watched revealed to you you were not on a paper tape, yeah. It, it, I could not figure out how they were optically doing this. I was in southwest Iowa, so there really wasn't a lot of, of technology to talk about. So that, that completely mystified me until I, I eventually saw one that was out of order and saw that it had lost vertical hold and the screen was flipping. And that was when I realized it was running on a TV. But up to that time, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious at all. Computer Space really wasn't a very fun game. It, it was interesting as I went through looking at the, the various points in time or technological advances, you would see the first thing, and it was never the, the breakthrough one. So Computer Space was in 1971, and Pong was in 72. Uh, and Pong clearly was the breakout video game. The uh, first color game was Tank 8. It was uh, almost nobody would see outside a very large arcade because they cost $10,000 to the operator at the time. I mean, even today, that would be expensive for a video game. In the early 70s, that was just out of, out of control. The first microprocessor game was Midway's Gunfight, which uh, was a pretty pathetic game. But the follow-on to it, uh, or it essentially, the same designer went on and did Space Invaders, which was, was clearly a, a breakthrough. So it was just sort of interesting going through, looking at, the, at video game history and, and seeing those. I, I sort of thought of the 70s as, as uh, 
silent movie era. And the 80s, we sort of moved into the talkies, where you essentially mostly got 2D games, Robotron and Gauntlet and Pac-Man. There were bits of 3D in Battlezone or Tempest or Zybots, but but by and large, it was was the era of, of 2D. And then... Carrying the uh, the analogy further, if you watched film, you would see how people discovered that you could make the camera movement be part of the story and do lots of other things other than just pretend you were doing a stage play. And that's that's probably the 90s. You could zoom in while moving the camera back. <laughs> well, also, yeah, I guess actually you could say that's sort of what Mortal Kombat did even in, in 2D, going beyond the Street Fighter genre a little bit. And then my, my favorite early 3D game in that time frame was Gauntlet Legends, which I noticed by looking up is, is actually a 3DFX-based uh, game uh, using uh, one of the early PC video chips. And then the 2000s, uh, things moved too fast, and it was pretty clear that Coinop was being outdone regularly by what home machines were doing. But it's, well, so it's, it's, it sort of moved into uh, Dance Dance Revolution being that's right. The, yeah, it became like big plastic apparatus that you would interact yes. with. Yes, essentially, you, what you had to do was you had to have something which was a control that you couldn't do at home. Uh, and Unless I, you're super rich. <laughs> Correct. And, and to some extent, Connect actually takes away some of that. It's interesting. Those, those bastards. <laughs> well, right, right now, I mean, outside of certain places where it's still a cultural thing, I don't, I don't think there is any kind of an arcade scene, is there? Uh, I, I guess scene is, is, is hard. I I've personally go back to one arcade Every time I am around it, which is the arcade in between Harvey's and Harrah's in uh, South Lake Tahoe, <laughs> where all my relatives go to the the casino, but they have pretty good arcade. One of the it has a game that I've never seen anywhere else that uh, I can't remember the name of, but it's sort of like Dance Dance Revolution, but it's like that combined with like the weird hand motions that ravers do. <laughs> huh. That makes any sense? It's there's basically a thing projected in front of you and um, the there's like a red laser going up and a blue laser going down and there are two of them and you, uh, invisible lasers but you sort of like break the path of the laser in, in time to, to music and so you're you're passing your hand over and, and under in, in, uh, in different rhythms it's a lot of fun. That's also where I, I, I most recently, I think I, it was Gauntlet Dark Legacy that I, I played there but I, I guess it would be hard to call that a scene and, and more just a place where children and, and adults who don't like to gamble go. I can't think of a new game that's come out for arcade that we would go to play. Right. Now I think it's Chuck E. Cheese Redemption game. You take your six-year-old or whatever, and they ask you for quarters and quarters and quarters because they're getting these tickets that they then consider to be free, and they then can turn in on a furry doll. Yeah, the the ticket the ticket racket will never die. <laughs> well, you, you know what what is is always weird to me the the reverse to to Dance Dance Revolution is where you see Guitar Hero in in an arcade and it costs a dollar 
per game. And it's actually Guitar Hero. It's like they're the the controllers from a console or something. Yeah, it's it's more or less a console, and you play like maybe you play a couple of songs, but but usually it's like one song for a dollar or so, and that's that's like that's like the opposite of what Dance Dance Revolution. So it's a song. It's not as long as you do it well, you keep playing. Yeah. <laughs> oh no no the the arcade games got past that. <laughs> There's no longer any benefit for performance. I, and then the other thing is like a gigantic, basically like a big screen TV sized touch screen with Fruit Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, mean, I, I can see them being really cool at PAX. But yeah. Beyond that, I, I don't see the place for it. But, like, paying as much for a game of Fruit Ninja as the Fruit Ninja app costs. <laughs> yep. It almost feels like a racket against people who don't understand that, that you can you can buy these games in another venue. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's also an interesting reversal because going back to the 80s, or early 80s, the Atari 2600 era, arcade games of that time were the, the games that would get converted into, into home cartridges. And it was sort of like movies that were eventually going to come to television. Yeah, well, and similar like Street Fighter Two going to, uh, to Super Nintendo. Yeah. And, and, and that, that actually continued for, for quite some time, although I think one of the, the things that Nintendo caught on to that Atari did not, and was part of the demise of Atari, was that made-for-home games could have very different play characteristics that you can play forever, and it's okay, because you don't need to get people's quarters. You've already got their $30. You can use different reward mechanics to build the game up. Right, and that... and, And so the Nintendo actually branched home gaming in a clearly different way in terms of motivating players than coin-out games were because coin-out games had to earn your quarters over and over and over. Yeah, you can't play Final Fantasy uh, at the pizza parlor. Yeah, or even Zelda. I mean, that was that would sort of be unthinkable. Right. I mean, people tried it, and the, the, the gauntlet legends and so forth, people tried various things. They had forcing factors to, you can keep putting quarters to play longer and longer. You can actually, if you get to a particular save point in gauntlet legends, it would give you essentially a, a cheat code. So the next time you came back, you, you could, could start where you left off, yeah. Code and continue from there. And let's not forget the, the games that are still alive and kicking, right? Which are the ones where you shoot a deer. Oh, yeah. The one, where you, the one where you hit a golf ball. Yes. I, I mean, essentially, the, the, that uh, simulators are most of what's left in arcades. And to some extent, they're, they sometimes actually try to be rides as much as they are visual experience. That's fine, and and, and it appropriate at some place like Disney World where they can afford it. But in terms of being at a pizza parlor, not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Dave & Buster's, which I semi-recently went to at a going-away party for my partner's co-worker, one of those things that looked like a game was, in fact, actually a ride. <laughs> uh, and there, there was no interactive part. It, was, it sort of like souped up the amount that you went back and forth and it was like a mini 
it's like you lay down and it's like a personalized Star Tours, but you can pick different scenarios. Like if you're a ball in a pinball machine, that's that's the one we did. I think there was one that involved snowboarding. <laughs> oh, it's like the old like the old pods you would get in where there were like four seats and the whole thing was on hydraulics and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that the, your your point that home games are coming to arcades. It's essentially a full circle where arcade games used to go to home, and now uh, arcades are so starved for content. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would wager that you know they're just trying to squeeze a stone there. Right, and it, that's exactly it. And stretch my earlier metaphor. It feels like the Brady Bunch movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's money in there somewhere. You just gotta just gotta dig in. <laughs> The Big Buck Hunter and basically any games of where there's like a plastic gun is is also the differentiator because people forgot that there used to be a, a gun that came with every Nintendo. So let's take it as given that we're not talking about which came first and the sort of his, history of these games. But we're really talking about the popularized narrative about how these games evolved. So we can say Pong came out and not worry about that there was one first. Then we can say Space Invaders came out and not worry about the ones that were before that were not commercially successful. Fair enough? Yes. How do you make a list of the most influential or meaningful or differentiated games or types of arcade games that, that came out in those early days? Yes, and I started trying to do that, and, and then I realized it's as easy to do as any top 10 movie list absolutely and i was, I was that was on the tip of my tongue it it is a highly editorial process right and and i was fully willing to voice my my personal opinions about robotron and gauntlet legends and and these and and, and such but then i actually started realizing that the opinions i was expressing to myself didn't actually have a, a great deal of coherence behind them. I, I couldn't actually say, have I really thought through this decade, in particular the 90s, which... Well, well, don't worry about the 90s yet. I mean, we're talking about the early 80s type time frame, right? Right. Well, early 80s is fairly easy uh, as far as I'm concerned. You had... Well, Space Invaders was 78. Then from Midway, you essentially have the Pac-Mans, and I don't think anything else that was of note. Some people are uh, into to some of the other Midway games, Wizard of War and so forth. But With Space Invaders, you get the games that were all Space Invaders and potentially is Galaga in the same category as Space Invaders as far as type of game? Yeah. Galaga felt to me, or, or at that, Galaxian was the first of those, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, was essentially space invaders in which they move around in patterns and so forth, and it's done in color. And th- you could also argue that Centipede, Millipede, those games were the same sort of game with, with some enhancements, right? The, the trackball notwithstanding. Yes. Although trackball is a pretty fundamental change in gameplay in terms of looking at the the way you interact with a game. It's 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 similar to the difference these days in doing being able to do a game like the Path games, flight control, 
on an iPad. Flight control wouldn't actually be particularly interesting doing it with a mouse, and it absolutely would not be interesting doing it with a joystick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are some things where uh, I, I think the the control completely enables the the game. Certainly, Connect enables uh, game like things. Game- no, and I I'll, I'll accept that. You talked about Space Invaders, which is a down shooting up. You talked about Pac-Man, which is what's it? Is there a term for that? Is it a maze game? It is the maze game? There were others, though, right? Where does the where does Missile Command come in? Kind of doesn't fit, right? The interesting thing is, I considered the uh, much of that time uh, uh, was pretty much. I felt Atari was the gold standard of coin. They they were able to do clunkers, but by and large. They were trying interesting things and made really interesting games step by step. They were the HBO of the uh, gaming world. Yeah. Yeah. So Gauntlet, the first Gauntlet was The Sopranos for its time. And uh, Point Op, it really was because it was able to take four quarters at once. It wasn't, it, uh, wasn't it also remarkable because you had all the characters on the board at the same time? I think so. I'm not really sure if anybody had done uh, that sort of thing. Of course, it also constrained the game in, a, in annoying ways when you have four people, because the game can stop scrolling. <laughs> yeah, you had you, you, and you just hit a wall in Gauntlet, right? <laughs> Which is the same goddamn problem that Little Big Planet has. <laughs> yeah. Not not that we're upset about that stuff. <laughs> So we've got Gauntlet, we've got Missile Command on the board, we've got Space Invaders, we've got Pac-Man. Right. You've uh, got the vector games, Asteroids and Battlezone and Tempest. Would would you not pick Asteroids? Wasn't that the first? Asteroids was the first good vector game. Yeah. Uh, The vector game before it was Lunar Lander. Yeah, that, that game. Although I did, I did see a new pretty Lunar Lander on Steam. For Ten bucks. <laughs> it's one of the new Mac games. Huzzah. Cinematronics actually did a whole bunch of vector games. They were fairly interesting because they essentially that was their only platform, and so they started off doing a version of Space War, which essentially was reaching back to one of the first actual computer video games. The uh, early '60s, I guess, uh, MIT Space Wars, and they uh, did, a, as far as I can tell, a fairly faithful implementation of it, including al- allowing you to turn on and off gravity for the sun in the middle and so forth. So they could make make it very hard, so that only MIT students would want to try to calculate their trajectories of their uh, torpedoes and so forth as they bend around the sun, things like that. They also enabled you to make it really easy and even have friction in space, so you it, uh, you wouldn't feel out of control. But they did, these are the sorts of decisions that a arcade operator would make. You actually had a tin key of options to turn on and off the features for the game you were going to play. It was it was not a particularly good user interface for any of this, but well, but was, these guys were used to dealing with pinball machine controls, which were dips kind of brutal. Actually, in that area, yeah, there would have been dip switches, yes. Um, interestingly, before this, before uh, 
Cinematronics did their Space Wars. And actually, I believe it was even before Pong and maybe com- around the time Computer Space went into an arcade. There was a one-off video game in the Stanford Coffee House. Had a vector display and a coin mechanism, and you would play Space War with it. Um, a player against player, and, and ran on a PDP 11. Not a cheap machine for that time. So it was essentially a technology demo. I have no idea how much money it made. I doubt it ever. No, but it was one of those things they, they set it up because they could, right? And I remember visiting my sister in Palo Alto, and she dropped me. We went by there, and I instantly honed in on this thing. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was like a magnet to me, and didn't want to leave it. But on the other hand, I was too in- intimidated by the big college students uh, who really knew what they were doing to uh, play it. And my sister was not going to play with me. But, yeah, of course not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That, they actually ended up doing a second console plugging into the same PDP-11 and allowed you to link them hmm. and play multiplayer, or I guess have four players on at once, uh, on two different screens. Hmm. How does the Donkey Kong fit in? When, when did that one come out? Donkey Kong was, what, early 80s? So that kind of falls off of the time frame that we were initially talking about, right? Yes. 81 it was. On one hand, it was a traditional video game in that it wanted your quarters. On the other, you could say it was, was there an interesting platform game before it? I'm not sure there was. Donkey Kong introduced in a new era both of game design and also a whole level of capability on platforms, right? Well, I remember we had one at General Computer, and we were looking at it and taking it apart and being shocked at, it appeared to me they were spending a lot of money, ECL logic in it. Huh. It was fairly clear that the platform was able to do way more than Donkey Kong was taking advantage of at the time. When Atari would do a coin-op game, they would pinch every pin. The hardware would essentially be designed to do that game and nothing else and would have specific uh, logic to be able to create, say, the road you're going to drive on versus the number of objects that will be moving across it, things like that. Part of that was they didn't like the idea of people being able to upgrade their games. So they wanted every game to have an entirely new set of hardware. Yeah, because that, um, that, was, that was money that didn't necessarily go into their pocket, right? Right. They felt if they ever sold something that was nothing but a ROM upgrade, all the operators would just copy the ROM. And they were right. The operators absolutely would have just copied the ROMs. And then the, the general computer people came along and did an upgrade for Missile Command. And Atari felt very threatened by that. Sued uh, their little pants off. Have you guys read that Chasing the Beam, a Ian Bogust book that is about the Atari 2600? It's not so much about the hardware, but the software limitations. And it, it sounded like the sorts of constraints that they had to take advantage of sound very similar to what you're talking about with the hardware. Yes. The folks at General Computer, I didn't do any 2600 cartridges myself. I was doing hardware design at the time. 
but I was surrounded by a bunch of people who were doing coin-op conversions onto the 2600. So I, we were we were very aware of the limits of of the 2600, which was designed in mid to late 70s and still alive in 83. You know, late in its life, it really really showed compared to say the NES. The programming for it redefined real time. You had to count instruction cycles before you would execute a particular instruction when you would store to a particular register. That would tell the uh, hardware that the player object should be at this horizontal position on the screen. And then you would have to wait a certain number of microseconds until the next scan line and do it again at roughly the same time, roughly meaning exactly the same time, so that the, the next set of pixels for that player would appear on the following scan line. Very, very hard to program. It worked out that you had to do all of your game logic programming during the vertical blanking interval. Yeah. (laughs) But you didn't actually have anything that would come back to you and let you know you'd run out of time and force the processor back into on-screen time. You had to actually just monitor video hardware to see if you were running out of time. And if you did some calculations for the game that it would t- take too long, the entire screen would jump because it wouldn't turn off vertical sync in time and your TV would get upset because you were trying to do a, a, uh, a hold the, the system in, in vertical sync longer than it should be. Absolutely uh, ridiculous constraints and a lot of programming was done under it. The book was Racing the Beam, and it dug into all of that and approached it from from the standpoint of knowing those things about the system makes you appreciate and know more about, I guess, the game design choices that that had to be made. Uh, makes it more impressive how you're able to do, you know, pitfall <laughs> with that. Yes, and and in many cases, a lot of the games such as Galaga and Space Invaders that were putting up a lot of objects apparently on the screen at a time were actually using the system in ways it was not intended to be used. They were exploiting bugs in the silicon. What this meant, of course, was that, that Atari really couldn't cost reduce or update their silicon for the 2600 because they could never be sure they were going to make it bug compatible. Yeah, because all the implementations were so dirty. The original 2600 was done in the era of Pong, Breakout, and Tank. So it expected you to be able to have two player objects, which might be a car or a tank driving around the screen, and two missile objects, which were essentially a dot. And they actually had hardware which would detect that a player and a missile had intersected so that you didn't have to check that, check the coordinates in software, although by and large that was not that hard a thing to do. And then they had background stuff, which would tend to be things like barriers in a tank game. But they were very, very low resolution. The, The background data was... 20 bits across the screen, which could either be repeated halfway across or or reflected. And uh, so you essentially, the background objects were 40 pixels across. (laughs) Um, 
you just just uh, astonishingly crude stuff, and they managed to turn out some really interesting games. In terms of the Pong-like games, one of my favorites was the 2600 implementation of Warlords. People, uh, which, people are still talking about that. I, I, I had a good time with it. I, it, it was a coin-op game that never, I think, went anywhere, it, it, that uh, supported four players at once. You were essentially using your paddle control, or the uh, knob, to move your paddle around the periphery of your castle, which is in the corner of a, of a screen. And as long as you could reflect the ball when it came, which was a fireball, away from you, uh, your castle would be defended. If you let it through, then it would break down parts of, of your walls and you were in trouble. And that turns out to actually be a pretty fun game. When Boom Blocks came out for the Wii, they did a homage to Warlords that was not the same because you couldn't deflect shots, but it was pretty similar where you had four castles and you would all wail bowling balls at each other. Mm. Did we ever play that? I have not, I confess. Huh, I thought I would have been certain that we would have played that at some point. Well, I've still got it. Yeah. So, I, I had a crazy idea. Buy Smash TV and uh, bring it to the office? I know yeah. where we can find one. So do I. When's the last time you powered up that, that thing? It's been years, probably over five. Huh. The, the, the crazy idea that I had was whether or not it would be interesting for us to build some of these old games in a more modern development environment. As in try to, to build the exact games? Uh, not necessarily. Build an implementation of them and talk about problems you have to solve when you're developing the game. My knee-jerk reaction is no. And I know I've been pushing the movie metaphor a whole lot this evening, but the, the silent movies that Charlie Chaplin did were awesome for their day. But there was a combination of seeing things for the first time and the artistic expression of, of that particular actor that will build up people's good feelings for something like that, that can make you want to re-experience it for nostalgia. You're really never going to want a new silent movie. Pong is a silent movie. Even Warlords in its simplest form, although some of the gameplay could easily be adopted in interesting ways on, on something modern. Everybody, when they, they do their 80s-esque homage, uh, homages such as Sword and Sorcery and, and so forth, they recognize that the callbacks to the pixelated age only takes you so far and that fundamentally they're doing very new stuff. And I, I think Bastion is an example of that as well. That, yes, they're callbacks to a, a Nintendo platform game, but then they add the narration and so forth. And they try, I think, to give it different gameplay, although not necessarily succeed. You know, if you imagine a person who's, who's interested in games and wants to understand what's going on under the hood today, but let's say the hypothetical person downloads something like the Unity 3D engine. It's easy to imagine how a person could be a bit at sea. The Unity engine is incredibly powerful. This, uh, is, this is true. And without grounding in the fundamental concepts behind these games to begin with, you're kind of at a loss. Now, a lot of people start by developing in Flash, and they all make generally the same game. Which that's what I see on Concrete all the time. But there's also some very nice engines like Pygame. I actually prefer the Love 2D Lua engine. 
Or now do uh, JavaScript engines for HTML5 browsers. Yeah, it's whatever framework you want, right? I still think there's some value by doing some of these basic games just so you understand what kind of walking and chewing gum you have to do to solve the problems. And then as you move on to new genres of games, if you carry that forward, you sort of get a nice cross-section understanding of new problems that are introduced, the old problems that stay the same, that, that kind of thing as you move through. Yes, I mean, the point you're making is not that those exact ports of games are fun to play, but but rather pedagogical thing to to, to, to like go through th- that process and reason asteroids from first principles. Yes, I I could buy that. There's the doing a game because I can make things move around on the screen. Then realizing that okay, I I'm using the WASD keys to move and I've got my character animating so it walks as it walks its feet don't glide I've gotten past all all sorts of these interesting technical challenges and so forth and now I could walk over a a coin and collect it and such I can keep adding these interesting things but is it actually going to be fun what is going to carry me through geometry wars is an example of something that isn't obviously art heavy oh that's that's absolutely not the case but you could very easily imagine a geometry wars with none of the sizzle well but it would be fun right that's different the 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 the, all, all the particle effects are are the sizzle i do not know when when they did geometry wars whether that sort of stuff was done by artists or it was heavily done by programmers my suspicion is it was mostly programmers. I would guess the same thing. So that's an example of something where, frankly, it, it's dominated by the gameplay choices. The, the uh, you know, way the motion is, the, how it feels in terms of its momentum and so forth under the, the controls, both for motion and for shooting, and the, the various power-ups and the various combinations of the way enemies attack, giving you interesting exper- interesting experiences to, to try to survive. That's, in some sense, a modern example of pretty much pure gameplay. But then it's sold by the sparkly color graphics that look vectorish, but are absolutely not, and are, are using fairly high-tech game engine techniques to draw all the fireworks. And that's great. Whether that part of it was uh, driven by an art director type as opposed to a programmer choosing the color and the correct sparkly effects and so forth, I don't know that much about the development of that game or how hard it is to, to choose that sort of thing. One thing I come to realize, at least as a limitation for myself, is the difference between aesthetic choices being well done and technical competent choices that will make useful uh, machines and frameworks in software or hardware far better at the latter than, than the former. Sorry, I, I got distracted because I was reading about particle systems on Love2D. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is amazing how I could really conceive somebody doing a game in Xbox.net and then being like, yeah, all you have to do is like add three lines of code and you get all the graphic sparkly stuff. <laughs> you know, it's probably not the case. Yes. Are you interested in following in the steps of our forefathers to understand how some of these games are put together? It would be an interesting challenge, depending on 
how much time we have. Okay. Well, the the hope is at least in the beginning, given that we have incredible leverage from these lovely platforms, that the game design itself is rather trivial. Uh huh. Okay. Well, stay tuned. Are you uh, thinking is the love love two D or? Yeah, I like love two D. Flixel. That's the the Flash framework. The Flash is wonderful, but I don't don't think I want to do that. You have to have a, an IDE to do that, whereas I imagine... Yeah, uh, we talked about that, where it's like, yeah, first get the Adobe Flash Builder. You know, the quality of those tools are on par with, with what Microsoft's doing with .NET. Whereas Love, you you download download the programming language and then easy to compile and run. Love, you get what you get. But um, it's pretty easy to get going. And it's a lot less fiddly than the than the Pi, Pi game stuff. Is Love Lua? Yeah, Love is Lua. It's been on my remember the milk list for for like a year. To, yeah, that, that was uh, one of those things out. where I mentioned it to you, and you're like, "Oh, I've I've actually had that on my list already for several years. I've never gotten to it." <laughs> um, I'll, I'll send you the link. It has a is it an umlaut. It's, it's just love2d.org. Yeah, but what's that thing with the dots? Yeah, it's an umlaut. There you go. Lars umlaut. <laughs> All right. Well, we can talk some more. Anything else you guys want to say about arcade or life or games? Well, I actually am I'm interested in trying to figure out, while we're talking about games, and we've talked a lot about different uh, games, what is an appropriately non-ambitious game category to try to attack with something like the Love 2D engine? If you spend any time on Congregate, you'll see... A lot of experimentation with games, with very basic game concepts. And what they're what they're basically doing is larding on modern game concepts like unlockable upgrades or achievements or MMO style, like I gain this many experience points and I can level up into a talent tree. And building them into very, very simple games. Games that are like top scroller shooters, the one where you jump off a ramp, which never, I think, made it in arcade, but apparently it's really big with Flash games. There's a lot of those. But what else did you say on the subject, Jim? Yeah, there's there's some... Uh, it, it's a mix um, of, of sort of like student project type games and clever games that are small and have no commercial potential. Do you, do you want me to make you a list of games to try? Yes. Okay, I'll do that for you. I'm just looking through some of the names of, of games, and and I feel like I'm I'm in a, a, an art movie house. <laughs> well, no, it's it's more like you're going to need a lot of Purell uh, because there's a it's it's kind of CD. <laughs> Do we have any uh, sponsors to take us home? No, I. The cardboard boxes managed to fund us entirely. Yeah, we're going deeper with one. I wasn't inspired. I wanted to go into a Sega title. Or like a Turbo Graphics 16 title or something. Bonk. Just, that's the uh, next well, I, one. I couldn't think of a good tie-in with Bonk, and I, I wanted to do that. <laughs> Military Madness was a uh, my favorite Turbo Graphics 16 title. What was that? It was a hexagon-driven. I don't know if I'd call it strategy game, battle game. You would move your pieces according to their abilities for distance and, and, and such, and they would be able to attack certain distances. And the terrain of the map controlled everything. You, you played against the computer 
and the AI was terrible. So the way they made it challenging was by having the two sides be clearly unbalanced, such that the computer had lots of terrain advantages over you at the beginning. The problem was it also had a two-player mode that used the same unbalanced maps. <laughs> if you were player two, you were going to win. Cool. Well, you know, we're at an, an hour and a half, so I, I think this is good for now. But, but thanks, guys. All right. And thank you, Tom, for all your diligent research. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. All right, guys. Have a great night. I will, um, I will talk to you soon. Cool. Yeah. Talk to you guys.